Dollars to Donuts with your host, Steve Portigal. Greetings and thanks for checking out this episode of Dollars to Donuts, a podcast where I talk with people who lead user research in their organization. Coming up in San Francisco on September 13th, I'm teaching a public workshop, Fundamentals of Interviewing Users. I'll put the link in the show notes. I bet you know someone in the San Francisco Bay Area who would get value out of this workshop, and I'd appreciate you recommending it. Also, I work with organizations directly to help them elevate their user research practices. Of course, supporting me and my business is the best way for you to support this podcast and help me make more episodes. If you have thoughts about the podcast, reach out to me at donuts at portugal.com or on Twitter at dollars to donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. I went to a cafe in my neighborhood. I placed my order and then I swiped my card in the payment terminal and they told me, we'll call you when your order is ready. So I went and sat down. I heard a couple of orders get called double cappuccino, soy milk latte, etc. And after a few minutes, they called me, Steve. I was briefly taken aback. They never asked me for my name. How did they know that order was for me? I realized that when I paid for my order by credit card, of course they got my name. But this seemed like a new customer service behavior. I was curious, so I paid attention the next time I went to Starbucks. They asked me for my name. They do this before payment. My local Starbucks is inconsistent as to whether or not they always ask for my name and whether or not they call out my order by the contents of the order or by my name. There are many regular routines that we go through that become almost scripted. So when something goes off script, like being called by name when I was never asked for my name, it really jumps out. Eventually, the script gets rewritten and we regard the change as familiar. But those moments of change are sometimes tentative moments in an experience. This cafe could have asked me for my name, not so they had my name, but so that they could signal to me that they were asking for permission to address me by name in a few minutes. I'm sure there are cases where the name on the credit card doesn't match to how someone prefers to be addressed. Maybe I'm just too sensitive in noticing this change to find it an abrupt surprise, but you can just imagine the well-meaning coffee shop staff feeling excited about being able to do this, to get the customer name and call out the orders in a more personalized manner than just double Americano. I mean, they could, but did anyone stop to think whether or not they should? Note that I'm not complaining about my service experience, just reflecting on it to suggest that it's an interesting moment when things change. Knowing that things are going to change is an opportunity to get ahead of that change and try to understand more deeply from the people who use that service what it is that they are expecting and where there might be mismatches between what you want to do and what that change will mean for these customers. Well, on to the interview. It was wonderful to get to speak with Ruth Ellison, and I think you're going to really like our conversation. She is the head of user research at the Digital Transformation Agency in Australia. Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't we uh, begin, as I often do, as we all often do, I guess, is uh, ask you for an introduction. Tell us, what do you, what do, you do? Okay, so hi, my name is Ruth Ellison. I'm the Head of User Research at the Digital Transformation Agency. So the D, we call it DTA, we love our acronyms in government. Uh, so DTA is a small and relatively new government agency set up um, to actually help Australian government create simple and fast, clear services. So this involves improving the skill sets of people who work in this space, um, in digital space, and also just helping looking at projects um, and how we do digital transformation across government. 
So what is digital transformation? Oh, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> Do I have to pay a million dollars to get the answer? <laughs> it's one of those things that we've got a digital transformation strategy. For me, it's really about how are we transforming the way government thinks and approach problems? Um, how do we help our citizens interact with government in ways that are better? So we use digital, but really for me, it's not just about digital. It's about the people. And it's about the services and how we move to much more human-centered lens to problem solving and problem definition and even just the way we deliver our services. And then who are the, I don't know, I don't know if clients is the right word, but who who engage with within government? Yeah, so the DTA has a very interesting function. We're a centralized government agency, very small. It's only a few hundred of us. Um, our clients are actually other government agencies, mostly at the federal level, because we have three levels of government in Australia, federal, state, and local. So we, we work mostly at the federal level, but part of our function is also looking where services cross between boundaries of government and how does that work across. Um, so our clients are mostly at the federal level, the other government agencies often very, very large or very small. doesn't matter the sizing. Um, what it matters is what are they doing that involves interactions with their users, which is normally citizens or businesses and organisations. And how? What are, what are different ways that those relationships get initiated in government? Yeah, so this is interesting for, for us. Um, a lot of work comes through depending on the size of the project as opposed to the size of the problem. So the DTA is actually involved in investments, investments that's over worth over a certain number of dollars. But we're also interested in where in projects that have a social impact as well. So if it meets a range of our internal priorities, uh, we're keen to get involved. So anything that really involves a way to transform the way government's interacting citizens, we're, yeah. we're interested in reaching out and working with people. So it's not just government. We also work with government and not-for-profits and, and other private organisations to work out what's the best way to collaborate and, and find new ways of working. It's really exciting. Yeah, can you give some examples over the last few years, what kinds of things the DTA has worked on? Yeah, so part of our transformation agenda is how do we uplift the skill sets required to work in these ways and these more human-centered ways. So one, I've been involved in a few projects back in earlier days of DTA, called, it's called Digital Transformation Office. Uh, one of them was actually around looking at how people, <laughs> this, this might sound really boring, but it actually was fascinating, about tax obligations. So we're looking at the space of how do people start up small businesses and what are the kind of challenges and barriers that they face when interacting with government. So we went through the full discovery process, you know, going through discovery, um, we do alpha, beta and live. So discovery was really about what is this problem space looking like for starting a business. Um, as government, we have a lot of assumptions around how people interact with us and our role within people's lives. But through like a real discovery, quickly discover that there's a lot of other factors and lots of other interactions that happen that can be quite surprising. Um, based on that, the team actually, we actually narrowed down and actually look at this particularly interesting space, um, like the maker movement, the people who are making a lot of jewellery or they're crafting beers or they're doing very niche kind of things where it's kind of a hobby at the moment but it starts shifting over into potentially a small business. That space is fraught with a lot of questions and uncertainty from our citizens because they're not sure if what happens if I don't say anything to the tax office. Do I get a tax debt down the track? You know, you don't want to end up with a $20,000 debt. It's very scary. Um, how do we actually help solve that particular problem? So through this kind of discovery and alpha processes, we narrowed down um, and actually helped the I think three agencies work on this particular problem on how we define what people's obligations are with the government um, and how we can make that a little bit easier. So what uh, yeah, what gets output from that process and what gets what 
gets made or implemented by, you know, by an agency as a result of a, that kind of program. So I think people see the, hear the word digital and they tend to assume, is it going to be a digital product? Um, in this case, it was, but some other projects were not. In this particular case, it, we ended up with, an, with um, like a little smart online questionnaire tool set, but we didn't know that was what we were going to have. The team was quite deliberate in starting out very open to work out what is the actual problems and what's the context of, of these lives that we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to understand, um, because we can't just assume a digital tool is going to solve that particular thing. And it's a bit of a mind shift for government, because often it's quicker just to go down and just you know go, we're going to have an app or a new website to fix this. And part of this way of working is going, actually... Is that actually true? Um, are there other ways we can solve this? And how do we make people's lives easier? So we did end up with a digital thing at the end with this. Um, it's a, and it actually crosses over multiple agencies, which for those that don't work in government, it's actually a very challenging space. Agencies tend to work in silos um, just for the nature of the way we fund projects and the way we work and the way skill sets are built. Um, that is very siloed into one agency at a time. So to have something that works across multiple departments and agencies was actually a really amazing achievement and it was well done to the teams for you know for being for being part of this process and actually being willing to change as we as we went along and learn lots of new stuff about our users. You're talking about the teams in these agencies that are yes. that are open to that yeah. kind of collaboration. So, um, so I think in the early days of DTO or DTA, they people treated this a bit of an experiment. So what we did was we formed multidisciplinary teams. So we, we, don't, we didn't have user research going out, doing research and throwing it over the fence. Um, we're trying to shift that mindset because traditionally a lot of research that happens in government is very much in the evalu- evaluative side where it was you do a lot of usability testing, you do reports, you kind of give it back to the teams and they do stuff with it and you hope they <laughs> implement some of it. This was about trying to change the way we approach research, but approach the whole the whole problem landscape. So the team was formed from, I think, three or four different agencies, including us. Um, I was actually the, one of the researchers embedded into that particular team at that time. So this was before my head of research job. Um, and then we actually worked with the teams, with developers, business subject matter experts, um, taxation experts, and my favourite, a lawyer as well, on, on how we actually tackle this. And the reason we started looking at those kind of skill sets was because we found that we're just doing a very IT-focused problem. We don't and then look at the problem from a human lens. It comes down to a very technical solution. So by bringing people like the business folks in and, and the lawyers, we start having this kind of transformation that occurs that's very different. So some of the lawyers, she, um, I was working with her. I remember before she joined the team, she was saying, oh, you know, we have to send stuff up to her team and they'll, and they'll prove the wording and then we can go out to the users. And it was kind of, it was slowing down the processes of how we do doing design and, and research. So the team asked her to join our team and she became embedded and she went from this process of oh, research stuff that's not really what I do I'm here to be your taxation expert and your lawyer legal or the legal expert um, to coming on all the research and using and just changing her mindset on how we how we actually approach the way we word things so going from you know we can't say that because that's how government says things to that's not going to work for the people we saw it was a massive mindset shift and it was, it was fascinating. <laughs> What do you think, how did you create the conditions for her to have that kind of personal, professional transformation? So that's an interesting question. It, it really comes into the whole team. We had a, we're very lucky to have a team of people from different agencies who were willing to try these new ways of working. Um, a lot of them had done Agile before, but never, n- not necessarily worked where you have all these multiple skill sets in one team embedded for a 20-week process of trying to go through a full discovery all the way up to releasing something. So part of that was we have social contracts in place as a team and what, it, you know, how do we create a safe 
environment, psychologically safe, that where we can raise things and challenge each other. And it's okay to do that. Um, it was an active work every day. You know, the whole team's working on, on this kind of ways of working to say, it's okay to come along. It's okay to not agree with things, but come along and let's just try having an open mind when we're going out to this research and just, just observe and we'll come back. And as a team, we do our analysis and our, and our synthesis together. And that really helped her and the other team members' transformation from a mindset because mm. everyone was involved in the process not just me as a researcher bringing somebody else out with me. Um, And that was, I think that was a significant uh, mindset change. So this this group of people, 20 weeks, were, were like, how big was the team? Team, was, I think, was we had about eight to 10. If the, the size of the team changes. Yeah. Um, and, and even now, my, head of, my role as head of research, we help teams to understand that the team does change. The nature of the team changes over the course of these phases. So that was, we kept it small for that particular team because we had to move fairly quickly. We had to deliver something. Uh, but we also had to show the teams how we could uplift the kind of capability in both research and the other kind of specialist skill sets. So there was there was agile skill sets. There was things around development. Um, but my job was to, to lead the research yeah. transformation. So when you say uplift, you're, does this mean that people that participate in this 20 weeks come back to their agency afterwards with some, they, they've gone through some professional development? Yeah. So yeah. The, the goal is for them to go back to their home agencies or departments and actually continue the momentum. Um, so we learn a lot about that process. That's a whole <laughs> talk in its own about how do you build momentum and continue momentum when you're taking the team out of their context and out of their daily working life. So they were embedded into our agency for that 20 weeks where we create the space for them mm. to do that. We have we had the walls, we had the post-it notes, we had the, we had the equipment that we could take them out. Um, it was very different when they went home. So we learn a lot about that process and we iterate through our services as a result. But for them, it's about how do we enable that those kind of processes and systems for them to learn these things and to take it home and keep going with it. So, for example, they had somebody whose job was something to shadow me and to actually pick up this, the, the research skill set so they could try to take that back home um, and do a bit more of a deeper dive in research. So it seems like there's two sort of objectives, I'm sure there's multiple objectives, but it seems like one objective is go through this 20 weeks in order to launch something, in this case, this sort of small uh, you know, web questionnaire mm. that you created. I think it's on the web. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so that's, so the, the project has a, you know, a, an objective and an outcome, but the other, the objective for this whole engagement is to, is to uplift the skills so that people can keep going afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And do those, are those two, are those two objectives in harmony? when you do a program like this? That's a really good question. And that's part of our learnings from this, um, about what is the measure of success when we're talking about increasing kind of skill sets, whether in the research space or the other kind of what we call the speciality skill sets. Um, how do we be clear about what that measurement was? I think part of my learning personally going through that was that that wasn't quite as clear back then. So we had some tension at times where the team needs to show something to deliver. And then at the same time, I'm trying to, you know, trying to uplift the research capability to show the rigor, to show how we, how do we work in these ways. Now, sprint cycles were only a week at a time. It was very, very fast. And you're taking people through a very, what feels like a very uncomfortable process. And is this, it's uncomfortable. They're getting challenged every single day and our job is to help them through and navigate through that process. So yeah, it's, it creates tension. <laughs> but we, as I said, we have iterated as a result of learning, going through those programs to work out how do we now better serve our customers, which are the other government agencies. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, where if we were to sort of draw an org chart in the air, I don't know, maybe it's not an org chart for the government. Where does, uh, you know, where does DTA reside within the 
structure of, of, of Australian government? Yeah, we have a f- interesting function. So we are not a delivery arm, nor quite a, we touch on policy work, but we, we sit under the prime minister and cabinet kind of function. Um, so what that means is we are this centralised agency. It is a bit different. I think the quiv- maybe the closest equivalent might be the 18F-ish in the US, a little bit of GDS in the UK. I'm not sure what the, the Canadian <laughs> version would be. Uh, but we have a little bit of that kind of function where it's not, you know, it's not tied into any particular agency because uh, our job is to work across government agencies. Um, but that brings its own challenges around, particularly around the research practices, um, how we, you know, <laughs> we're going to come back to, we'll come back to this at some point, about how we manage our knowledge across government when a lot of research is happening across many, many agencies. Um, so we've got this uplift function, but I'm all, as my role ahead of research, I'm also interested in how we manage those other functions within government as well that relates to research and supporting the research practice. Sorry, what, so other functions? What do, you, what do you mean? Yeah, so at the moment, um, because I do a lot of, I help teams do a lot of recruitment, whether it's internally within our organisation or other government agencies. So they reach out and go, Ruth, um, we need to hire a researcher. Um, we're not quite sure what to look for. Uh, can you help? You know, so, you know, it's about reaching out, how do we help them craft the, how, how do we help them find the right fit of people? So, you know, are they doing a discovery piece? Are they doing, you know, just a lot of very heavy product work that just, it's just iterating, you know, um, just their product day to day to day and trying to work out what is it that they actually need and, and how does that work and what kind of researcher would they need? So helping them find that right fit um, because we don't have a pool of people. We're a very small agency, so we just can't pop out and just embed into teams. Right. We used we did that before in the past. It we can't it doesn't scale for us. So now we're working how we support those functions. Um, other things that we're also looking at is how do we manage the knowledge that we build as government around our citizens. We have so much research and we spend a lot of money as government looking at our citizens' experience, their interaction with government, but it's often done in those individual organisations. So they might have lots of data internally, but what happens when we start needing to look at it between those touch points, between those different agencies? How does research work in those spaces in between? Because people are having a very agency focused view of their citizens. Yeah. So part of our one of our functions is actually looking at how we provide a more holistic lens across government to show that when a citizen engages with government, it's not just a department at a time, but it's actually a range of organizations, whether it's government, private sector, you know, friends, networks, whatever it is, how we how we show that relationship and the context of people's lives. So it's bigger than just one particular service or element of a service. Are there aspects of how government is structured, uh, I don't know whether that's regulatory or funding or, you know, are there any, you know, you're talking, I mean, because every big organization has sort of siloed research and siloed data and doesn't treat the user experience as coming across all those things. I think that's common and, you know, above a certain size, but I'm wondering, you know, are there sort of any any interesting compounding factors in the way that government works that maybe changes, changes that, uh, how you even try to address those problems? Yeah, it's a really good point because different government agencies have different rules around data collection and different legislation around how much data and what data you collect. There's often discussion about, you know, as user researchers, the kind of data we collect may not necessarily be the same kind of data that the legislation demands that we collect a bunch of other things around that service. So it's often, it's often this tension of going, well, you know, we're here to understand about our citizens. Um, how do we collect data that people might go, the consent has only allowed it to be shared within that particular department. So we start hitting up against issues around consent and do, do we start looking at broader consent around all of government or is it mostly just federal government or is it just between portfolios of government? We haven't nutted out that issue yet. It's a, it's a challenge that we're working on right now because um, consent is such a big 
big, big problem space for us. Like we want to do research that's ethical um, and safe. And, and it's really challenging when you've got multiple agencies who are funded separately. Um, it's just, you know, back in the private sector days, you know, I'll come and I'll work for one organisation at a time. This feels like we're just up the whole, the whole scale of the problem because now we're, we're taking across multiple agencies who may not necessarily want to share or be as comfortable sharing what they have yeah. for a number of reasons, whether it's a rep- whether it feels reputational risk, because we deal a lot as risk <laughs> as government. It's always it's always focused about risk. And I'm thinking, what happens if people find out that people said that about our service? Um, we don't want people to know that people said that about our service. So you get you get those kinds of oh, so there's a risk to the agency if the, if the feedback or any kind of user data that's critical of that agency if that becomes public, that's if you're a civil servant, then that you don't want that. There's some mindsets that yeah believe yes, that, okay. that get creates um, a rep- they call it reputational risk for government. Okay. Um, so it's one of the challenges heading up research is how do we deal with that kind of mindset and how do we shift some of that thinking as well about so a lot of framing I've, I've been using a lot more recently is about you know this is about risk reduction and about increasing your certainty in the decisions we're making whether it's policy or your product or your features you know whatever whatever scale we're talking about research helps you with that decision making um, we're not something that you just do on the side and you just throw over, it actually becomes part of your decision-making processes and one of your many inputs. Because in a day, we understand that people have a lot of pressures and lots, you know, they're making decisions about why they release certain things, whether it's a policy or a government service. Um, but how do we help them do those things a bit better? And so that framing around risk reduction or, you know, reducing risk, increasing certainty speaks the language of some of some people. <laughs> That also sounds like private sector product development where there's, I mean, the consequences of, the consequences are different. It's not just about finances, it's about other, I'm gathering that in your situation, there's other consequences besides, you know, profit of the organization in the commercial sector. But so like you said, reputational risk is like a very tangible thing that people are kind of operating around. And also there's another challenge that government, we work in a four-year cycle over here in Australia. So the cycles of government, if, if there's an incoming, is there's a different change of government happening, um, the, pol- the genders may change as well. And that would change the focus of your research. When you're trying to be a bit more strategic research, you can change that function or not. You know, like we have that additional level level to think of. So so although at one hand you could go, we, we still need to understand our users, our citizens, no matter what, no matter what government's in power, we still have a certain, you know, we're still part of our, our function and role as a researcher to un- keep that understanding going, keep developing that deep understanding. Um, but the, the, the stuff it aligns to in, in the strategic decision-making does change. Uh, and, and that's always an interesting factor, I think, working in government. It's what, it's, what, it's what actually made me, it's one of the things that made me join actually leave private sector and come here was the complexity of all these kind of nitty gritty things that um, looks simple on the outside, but it's actually really complex and really messy. And, and I just love that. Yeah, what do you love about that? That sounds like something that some people might run away from. But you're, <laughs> you're, you're drawn to it. Because it's hard. It's really, really hard. Because I've been a consultant for, oh, whatever, seven, eight, for many years. Um, and I enjoyed that breadth of, of consulting. But what I find as a consultant, I will go, we go in, we help people do a certain thing. You get that joy of that seeing something happening quite tangibly. But I was starting to, I've reached a point in my career where I wanted to see that really affect change in a much greater scale and affect it in a much longer kind of time frame as well. So what, I was going to point out as a consultant where you do things um, and it affects a particular project or a program. But I actually want to start looking at how do we affect whole scale change in government? How do we start shifting that 
mindsets. And I it just was it was hard to do it as a consultant. So I thought the only way I could maybe try doing it is to join the public service. <laughs> so about two and a half years ago, I left the private sector and I've come in to try to do this with a bunch of other really smart people across all levels of government, trying to look at how we do this transformation. And it's hard. And I, I like that because it's you're in for the long haul. <laughs> you're in for this massive change. You know it's not easy. And it was, and we're doing this kind of research that's really, you suddenly look at behaviour and, and organisational and government level change and it's I don't know it's just it's complex and fun <laughs> exhausting but fun <laughs> so you're describing in the uh, consulting world there's sort of there's moments or points in the process where you draw satisfaction or some re- sense of reward from yeah and now you're in this much more complex situation it's hard uh, I'm sort of inferring things take time <laughs> Um, so yeah, where, what sort of, what rewards do you identify yourself that, you know, whether it's milestones or successes, like what, what, what keeps you going in a very hard, uh, endeavor that you've chosen? This for me, for me, it's about the empowering of others. Um, cause I, it, I mean, one thing you said a lot, it was about that we help people. Like we like to help people. That's why we do the role that we do. And for me, it's about this is about how do we help it at scale? Uh, government has been doing things a very, for a very long time. And it's very, very smart people in government. Um, they're often bogged down in the, the way, the structures of government, the bureaucracy that, that sometimes doesn't enable the kind of stuff that, they, that, that these smart people are working on. So what gives me satisfaction is being able to help some of that, that transformation and help others empower them to do this stuff better. And the satisfaction I get is when somebody has that kind of mindset shift and they're mm. taking this stuff back home or they're coming back to me later and go, Ruth, uh, it's been a year since I've seen you, but here's what I've done. And you can, and they themselves have gone back and been this change agent for not just research, but for just humans, just human-centered, good human-centered thinking. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's great when you see that kind of stuff happen. So helping others to do this stuff better. Yeah, you said the long haul, and it makes me think, you know, as someone who is a consultant, you're done. You, you're not there to get that feedback or see the, the consequences, or you have to kind of find your way back in to say, hey, what happened a year <laughs> later? So if you're, you know, if these are longer-term working relationships that you have, you're able to see, you're able to hear from those people and see kind of what some of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, w- t- maybe we can talk about the head of user research role. Like, when did that come about? How did it come about? How- yeah, so head of research role, I mean, so I've been doing that for about, a, what, a year? Oh, no, about maybe two years now. Um, so that... In- so the, we had a previous head of, it was actually service design and research, um, Lisa Rackard, who you would know. Um, so she, when she left, the, they actually split that role up to two. Um, and it was, her role was an was a, a executive level role, but they're not splitting up the role and taking it down a level, which was, it was an interesting organisational change, I think, into a head of service design, a head of research. We've also have, have head of content strategy and head of interaction design and the, are my equivalents. Um, so my role involves helping my agency and across government to really better the practice of research. So I'm, I'm finding I'm doing a lot. Le- I, I don't do as much research anymore nowadays. My role is really more in an enabling function. So part of that is looking at how do we bring in the right people into the teams. Um, when they're here, how do we help mentor them? So part of that will be part of my role is I catch up with a lot of the researchers, checking how they're going. I'm connecting them to other researchers as well in, in our fun- in our in our communities, um, and also trying to look at how we put together 
much more how we lift the conversation around research. So part of my role is actually around that strategic aspect of research. How do we do it better? How do we help enable the broader decision making of government? Um, we're also starting to see a shift towards more policy side, so rather than just product and services, up into policy land where you know a policy can trigger many, many services and products. So that's really fascinating as well. And I'm, I'm really enjoying that kind of aspect as well. Um, the other parts of the role is really, so we look after the a guild. So I, I don't know, I've heard other organisations have this structure too. So our researchers who, are, who come into our organisation are embedded into product teams. But we have a guild um, that then unites all of those researchers and those interested in research to come together once a fortnight and actually share the knowledge. So it could be, for example, I'll be going back and doing a sharing of what you know what I might learn at a conference. Somebody might share about something happening on their project, um, a problem that they're having, how do we solve it together. So the guild is almost like a tribe that cuts across our organisation, no matter what team you're from, and it unites us as a practice. And that's how I work through that kind of process to enable the better um, uplift of our of our practice. And externally, my job is to just to advocate for the research um, role. So I often get called in to talk to other executives about, oh, what is this research thing? Don't we do this stuff? <laughs> Haven't we been doing this stuff for years? You know, answering those kind of questions, work out how it helps them from a strategic perspective, how it helps them in their decision making, and also just help their staff connect better and just do the craft better. So you said before how one of the things you're doing is helping agencies hire into that agency as opposed to into DTA, hire researchers directly into those a- those agencies. Is are those? And then you're talking now about sort of you know maintaining connections with the researchers through sort of formal and informal methods. I'm just trying to understand is that within DTA only or what's is there engagement with these sort of uh other agency researchers, I guess I'd call them. Yeah, so in so my the supporting through the guild is a, is a DTA only thing that we do, or anybody that comes into DTA on a short term project, we connect them up into the guild so we can um, support them that way. But for the broader government, we actually got a Google mailing list. Um, it's called a service design and user research mailing list. Covers both the service design and research, and we support people through that. But it's not just us supporting because it's we're, we're a facilitator. So our job is to connect others to each other because we've got amazing people out in government. Um, um, and if they connect and peer, we learn from each other. That's that's a really good thing. Not so we're not you know the, the be all and all. We, we're, we're that connecting function. I think with, you know some use we're brokering. You know, we help broker relationships mm. as well. Um, otherwise, it comes. It might. It may, It can come across as oh, does it mean everything has to go through DTA or do, you know do we have to be involved in all this stuff? Um, no, because it's about enabling others and empowering others to connect and keep growing together. So there might be a researcher in one agency that you know and another researcher in another agency that you also know, but they don't know each other. And if there's something going on, you might say, oh, this is the researcher you should talk to. Yeah, so, so some would say they're trying out um, a particular technique for the first time. I go, oh, so-and-so from here has actually done it before. Have a chat to them about how they do it and because yeah. they will have some good learnings in the government context of how, what worked, what didn't work. Um, and they will just help speed you up when you're trying to do this yourself. So in the in DTA itself, you know, how's you listed a bunch of different functions that you have kind of peers leading. I'm sort of wondering how the team sizes vary or the, I don't know if the team is the right word, but sort of the number of people maybe in each of those functions. 
Yeah, so user, at the moment we've got, um, I think we've got around 13 researchers, but a number varies significantly across DTA depending on the projects that we're supporting at the time. And also doesn't include the projects that we support that belongs to other agencies. So that number scales. Um, at one point I was working on one project that had 18 researchers and that was just within the one project. Um, so that was a good question there about scaling and processes and ethics and all of that. But the number changes. And what's interesting is that the, the recruitment is done by the product owner and we, we provide a support function to help them get the right fit but it's done by the products the person comes they join they join the product team so they don't belong to my team of researchers they it's it's more of a virtual kind of team that makes sense it's where the guild slash tribe comes in right um so the those product teams they usually range between the kind of six ten kind of sizing and there's usually a dedicated research function in there not all teams can have one because as government we often have budget constraints so we have people who do research who are not necessarily researchers but we try to encourage that that specialisms whether it's a researcher or a service designer or interaction designer because they bring a depth and they're upskilling people in their team as they're doing it too so someone could be uh, hired into DTA as a researcher, but the thing they're spending their time on is a project team. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Although I try to steal some time to work on our, our community, um, our practice-related things. So one, that, one of the things at the moment is um, we're, we're reiterating through our processes and policies at the moment. So through guilds, we, we use the guild as a bit of a working spot as well. We come together one, one hour a fortnight and we use it to work out what we want to tackle next and how to improve this particular process. So I try to steal time that way from yeah. those from those teams um, to enable our, our better practices. What's the, uh, you know, for Australian government em- employees, what's the geographically dispersed are they, if at all? Yeah, so DTS, because we're so small, we're based mostly in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia and very small. Um, I think we're near about 400,000 people that lives in Canberra. Our other office is Sydney, which is even smaller. But what makes it interesting when it's when you have that kind of uh, that kind of diversity in, in spaces is that other agencies are even bigger than us and they have much more, many more people scattered around Australia. Um, but the challenge, I think, when it comes to research is recruiting, finding strong talent in, in Canberra can be challenging um, as well and often people I love Canberra but lots of people there's always jokes about Canberra <laughs> people find it's weird it's too cold because it's you know you can snow winter it's cold it's cold in Canberra and it's hot in summer it's small we're inland people try, have these stereotypes about it being a government town so there's all these stereotypes around Canberra being a boring place it's actually not it's actually a beautiful place um, and I, I've, I love it um, but recruitment becomes really challenging like how do you encourage people to leave their beautiful cities of Melbourne, Sydney and come spend some time working for government. So part of that's trying to shift the conversation around, well, you know, is it, are we working on how we work on more meaningful work instead and shifting the conversation around that? Yeah. So it's trying to, you know, trying to, um, I, I think I always joked with Lisa before about, do we need to have a recruitment video <laughs> to show people, hey, it's great, come work in Canberra. Um, but it does change the way then how, on, on recruitment and how we uplift capability within existing um, skill sets as well. Can we go back to something you were saying about policy? I want to just understand maybe the mechanics of that more. So I understand that policy is set by parts of the government, and then that, as you said, that impacts the products that are being created. But you're describing maybe a different cycle, I think, or a different 
you know, stroke in that cycle where the work that you're doing, I don't know, just correct to say it's impacting policy or what, yeah. what's the dynamic there, I guess, is really my question. So there's been a shift, more recent shift in government. I think you'll see that globally is in global governments as well about how we shift this more human-centered thinking and, and lenses over to policy land. So traditional policy, they do a lot of research. When you create a policy, they go out, they do big scale studies, um, you know, there's certain methodologies for policy research. But um, part of what we're trying to work at we we're trying to help is how do we get the policy folks who are creating this policy actually out in the field, actually talking to the people who are impacted by this policy and actually going out into the communities um, will be impacted down the track by this and actually understand that context. So some people, some policy people do do that already, but, um, but it's not necessarily the norm. So we're trying to work out how we shift some of that thinking. And that's part of my, my kind of focus at the moment is how we start working towards that lens. And it's really interesting because, you know, people have been doing policy creation for years. It's not a new thing. Um, research for them is not a new thing. But the, the way we do the, our kind of research yeah. is actually new for them. Um, and trying to help people go, actually, you know, this stuff that we do is not just a digital thing. There's a bit of a perception that, oh, this kind of research is digital products, right? And you go, well, actually, no, we can actually apply it across a range of things because it's really about understanding people, understanding what is it like, you know, to, to whether it's interested in government or whatever it is, what, what, what does a person's, a day in the life of someone look like in this space? Especially when government was serving such a diverse range of people from our Indigenous communities to those that are very um, disadvantaged um, to those that might be on the other end of the scale as well, um, all the way to large scale businesses and small. It, it's such an amazing diverse set of users so how do we kind of work together to, sh to shift that thinking is yeah it's a good challenge and one that I think would take time <laughs> as well it seems very analogous to you know working with those agencies and you know your phrase of uplifting their skills they're you know those product people are starting at a different place than your policy people are, but it sounds like it's the same thing. We want to help you sort of understand the benefit of yeah, going out to the communities and seeing what's going on. Because so, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of like government, I remember starting government 17 years ago working on mainframe systems and, you know, our work involved doing usability testing. Like you got in and people, you see people, people using your thing. So research from that aspect is not new, but but I think the more, the more general style and exploratory style of research is new, uh, or new work for government now, because it's been happening for the last few years. So seeing that shift has been really interesting to say, how do we help you do more of that style of research as well? And, and they're all very valuable. And the stuff we're doing before usability testing is yeah, great and it's got a purpose, but how do we shift that conversation to talk about are we actually solving the right problem? Um, that's I think that comes under the guys at the moment a lot under innovation labs and, and design thinking. Um, but in the end of the day, for me, it's about, it's about the fundamentals of who are these people we're designing for, what problems are we trying to solve, and how do we understand the needs deeply? How we get there? You know, there'll be a range of methods. Um, how we help people work out what that combination of methods are. I mean, we talk about research methods. That's often about you know how do we get this data from these users we're trying to understand. But, you know, your emphasis seems very strongly on how do we engage the different people that work in government to learn that and do that and use it. And it sounds like, the, you're, you know, the word methods to me would encompass what you're doing there yeah, as well. Yeah, methods, approaches. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's one of those things that words, as you said, but words, words have meaning and words are powerful. Um, but even trying to understand, even within government, right, the word, when we talk about research, we talk about methods, people immediately go, well, what, what are we talking about? You know, are we talking about market research? We do a lot of that in government. Um, is that what you mean? Or is it, is it just, is it this design thinking thing? <laughs> Which is also, you know, a big buzzword. Or is it this agile thing? You know, so it's just, for me, it's like, well, being clear, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve yeah. as government? And, and, and I, I use the word methods, but it really is about that focus of we, we know we have an outcome. How do we best meet that and, and make sure we're, we're doing something that's, that's good for our users so it doesn't disadvantage them, but hopefully improves their lives as well. It'd be great to talk a little about, you know, what your just trajectory was through your education and your, and, and your professional work that kind of led you on the path. We talked a little bit about the consulting work before government, but it'd be great to just go back a little talk about, you know, sort of as you, you know, what did you, what did you, where did you start to see this path that you, you've been on kind of come? I actually totally by accident fell into it. <laughs> I, I started off as a business analyst working, designing mainframe screens. So that was over 17 years ago, my first kind of proper design kind of job. Um, I had no idea about mainframes at that time. I was like, what is this thing, this beast of a thing? Um, and the, I, it was just by the luck of the draw, I happened to be sitting next to a team that was the very first user-centered design team in government, in Australian government. So I would hear them, they go out, they do these things, they come back and they'll share these stories about the people that they were meeting and the, and the kind of feedback they had about products they were testing. I was like, what are, what are they doing? This stuff is really interesting. So being a curious person, I um, stuck my head up over the fence and then asked them, what is it that you're doing? So they told me about this user and design stuff. I never covered that in my uni degree. Like we covered it all about systems gathering, requirements gathering, you know, all these different methodologies that you do to do that. Never once heard about this human-centered stuff before. Um, so by accident, I heard that and I just asked, can I join the team? And I thought, what's the worst you can say? No. <laughs> and then I'll just go keep doing what I'm doing and keep trying to find a way. Uh, so I asked and I joined that team. And so I had my grounding um, by learning on the job. So starting government 17 years ago, just learning about what this human user-centered design stuff was, really loved it so much, and then went back to uni to try to get a master's in human factors back in the day. So this what, was, what was your first degree in? My first degree was um, information technology and systems, so uh, <laughs> very, very IT-driven. Mm-hmm. So I come from that kind, of logist- that kind of analytic lens is where I came from. But yeah, I think just but doing more of this stuff, I just realized I love research. Um, but it, it, it was a gradual thing because I yeah. didn't know that that such a, even, such a job existed. Now, it could be a reflection of Australia at the time because 17 years ago, the whole user and design movement was, was happening, was starting to happen. Companies were getting set up to do this kind of space. Government agencies were starting to think, were thinking about this stuff, doing usually testing. That's what you know, UCD was at the time. Um, so that was my... F- my first foray into this field. Um, from there, uh, and I think like many other people in Australia, we were generalists. We started off, we came from UCD to a UX generalist. We did everything, including research, you know, prototyping, every everything. Um, but I found soon after, I quickly realised that research was my passion. I just want to keep doing more of this stuff. <laughs> I think I just got really interested in what people do and say and think and why do they do certain things. Um, and that was, that was fascinating. So, so over, the, over the next 17 years, I ended up leaving government and then going out into consulting. Um, I was headhunted to come and do this work and 
it was great. So I, I did that and was working in private sector for quite a while and had this broad range of experiences. And then from there, that's when I decided, okay, I've been doing this stuff for a while. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying being a principal and, in, and helping others be better at the consulting craft. But that's when the thing came back to then, how do I do this in a longer term, impactful thing around government? Because that's where I live. And I'm really passionate to see how we improve government. Um, and there's just so much interesting work happening at space. So that's when I made the leap back so I started off at DTA as, a lead as one of the lead senior researchers that they had. Um, and then when Lisa left and took over and became head of research. I mean, think about the time that you were consulting. Um, you know, I mean, as someone who, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to something else. You started to talk about uh, going back to uni for uh, as a human, human factors. factors. Yeah, yeah, back in the day, there's human yeah. factors. Yes. But we didn't have uh, all, the, all the amazing design degrees we have now. Right. Um, back then it was, and that was the closest thing I could find because I wanted to improve, I just want to broaden my skill set in, in, this, in this kind of human-centered design space. And the only thing we had at the time was, was human factors. Um, so I, I, was, I was doing that remotely. I was also one of the first few students who was doing remote res uni res um, work. They never had that before. Um, it was challenging. And I got to work with a, and learn a bunch of people who were designing airplanes and aircrafts and hospital systems. And when I, I had to introduce myself, I was like, I work for governor design systems, digital <laughs> systems. It was, it was very jarring for me to go, wow, these people are doing stuff that, you know, it's, it's massive design things that if you get it wrong, it falls out the sky or, or people, people die. Um, and, and, and I was just designing online systems. But it was such a good grounding for me because human factors really about that processing, that cognition. It, it really drew upon the school of psychology and the sciences as well from this particular course that hmm. I was doing. Was there ever a point at which you started to identify yourself as a researcher specifically? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a hard one to answer because in Australia, we are, we, most people, people have mostly been generalists. That's how yeah. we, we just, we just, it's just evolved. Um, and you had to be in the consulting world to survive because if you, and I used to get really jealous <laughs> overseas, you know, I was, I would see the kind of work you're doing and go, oh, you can, you know, you can, you can be a specialist in this. But in Australia, we just weren't quite there as a, as a country. We didn't have the maturity to say, I am a researcher. So I, I would still, I would, I call myself a, just a UX person for a long time, but research is my passion. And I always seeked projects where I was doing that kind of work, where it's research um, and help enable that in our clients and in, in our practice. Yes, yeah, so I did. I think it just evolved. I don't know yeah. when it's, I just started calling myself that kind of thing. It was just something that I just did. So your first job that you came into DTA with, though, you had researchers in your title. Yeah. I yeah. guess, and not to conflate the way we identify ourselves with what our job title is, <laughs> but that's a point where you went from generalist to specialist. Is that right? Oh, if you're talking about titles, probably yes, because um, previously my title was principal consultant, yeah. US consultant. And part of my job was, you know, that although I, my, most of my work I was doing was, was pretty much, it was research, but it was research work. Cause that's just what I like. And that, so I'll get that, I'll take that, I'll do yeah. that kind of work. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily go down well with the clients. They just didn't know, they just weren't ready for the, for that um, in Australia. So you, they were more familiar with UX. You know, we need to improve our experience. And however you get there, yeah. we'll help them get that outcome. You know, help them get that outcome. So in, although probably 90% of my work was research, um, the other part of it was actually supporting, oh, probably less than that, because I was actually supporting the, the practices as well. As principal, my job was to make sure the quality of all the work coming through was also good. Um, I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff, and that kind of leadership role. It was my other half of my job before I left consulting. So, if, yeah, so the, I think the detail was the first time I actually just used the title and to the exclusion of everything else. <laughs> So, you know, one of the points you were making earlier was about just, you know, the challenge of recruiting 
I guess in Canberra specifically, and, and maybe in government as part of that. Um, so, but what was, how did you get recruited to, to jo- rejoin government? So I was actually working at the D or DT, former DTA, or DTO as a consultant, um, doing research work for them because it's the first time they were going through these these ways of working. And we were doing a discovery alpha beta live, um, and I needed people who had experience doing research who could who could help lead the, that that process and to help facilitate that process. And they were also recruiting for other specialists. So I was one of the many specialists that was brought on um, because they had to scale really quickly and trying to build that capability within weeks isn't, was not going to happen. So they had to find it externally. So I was one of those many externals that were brought in. When I came in, I saw these ways of working gone, wow, I didn't know we could do that in government because it is, is a bit of stereotype. People think about government is very, very slow moving beasts, um, you know, that you, you can't do a lot of things. But the reality is about how, how do we frame it and how do we um, talk the language of the people who are, who are decision makers to help bring about these change. So for me, seeing that, I was like, I want to be part of this kind of stuff. You know, this what feels like a bit of like startup. You know, doing all these ways. It's like I, it's like I found a home. <laughs> so seeing that was how was how I, I then made a leap. So so DTA then um, or DTA at the time made an, they've they kept asking, can you come on board? You know, if you like doing this stuff, you like government, come join. So I took a while to think about it, <laughs> quite a while, and then made made the leap because it is a big. Is it a big leap? Um, it is, you know, to leave. What is a very interesting job as a consultant? You know, you're helping so many different clients. You're having so many different problem spaces. You know, one day you could be working for an airline, next one for a bank, next one for a not-for-profit. You know, that's really, really interesting. And I like that. But there was this need. I wanted, to, I wanted to be part of that of that movement as well. You know, to 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 transform the way we do things as government. Yeah, you've made this point a couple of times that uh, you know, even though the D and DJA is digital, that you know, the work, the output, the output Outcomes don't have to be digital. Do you have any examples uh, where that's kind of how it's gone? Yeah, so there was this great project a few years ago done within DTA. It's called uh, Medicare. Medicare is our kind of health system where if you're a citizen, you got you get access to a range of health services. It's covered by the government. Um, so one of the services looking at was having a baby. So in Australia, you have a baby. Um, you have to register the baby for a Medicare card. Um, there's a whole range of processes around the registration. And as someone who's gone through it myself in the last two years, it's actually quite a tricky time frame because you're exhausted from from having delivering this, this amazing little thing. Um, you've got a million things going through your mind and then you've got all these forms you have to fill in. And sometimes that involves, because of identity things, you have to go into offices with a newborn. It's just hard. It's hard. And I've, I've particularly emphasised now that I have a little one myself. So this particular project is looking at how do we make that process easier. Now, what was interesting was that the team had gone in, I think they were thinking, maybe we'll just digitise the form. You know, maybe that's what we mean when we talk about digital transformation. That might be the easiest way we can deliver something quickly. But what they soon found out, and they had a really awesome service designer called Mira who, who joined the team. She worked with them and they started, she actually suggested they bring in a lawyer because they kept hitting up against issues like, oh, well, of course, we just, we just digitised the form. What else would we do? But when they went out doing the research, they were finding out that a lot of the stuff we were asking for as government, we really have, um, and the hospitals have, because when you give birth, you're giving a bunch of details over. So they actually went out, did a bunch of research out in hospitals, and what they ended up doing was actually deciding, you know what, we don't actually need something. Um, we don't actually need a form or we don't actually need a, a digital thing that you have like an app or, or a form or a website to fill in. What happens if we even just remove that process um, and just assume that if we're having a baby, we you know we get consent, we can we can just issue the card. So they're exploring this what might we kind of situations. And it was so it was radical. People go, oh no, you can't do it. no. 
can't do that. But when the lawyers joined the team, there were lawyers going, actually, you know what, we can actually make this work. So the trial was actually in one of the hospitals up in, um, in the Gold Coast, was actually looking at what happens if you seek consent from the parents at the time of the birth. Um, they really filled in a bunch of information to the hospital about the birth of the baby. But obviously we used that and create them and issue the Medicare card. So something had gone from taking weeks and weeks because you have to go in, see multiple people, get things signed in, had gone down from that to only a few days. And it was amazing because you've now gone from filling in something to not even having a thing at all and a service, the stuff just appeared in your letterbox. Um, for me, that was a very great example of transformation happening where you don't have to have a particular physical digital thing. And yeah, and it's good to see what, what they did with it. Are there uh, things outside the professional realm, like outside your your work at DTA, where your your skills, the things that you know that you have passion for, and the things that you are just so great at, that is there anything that you do outside that where those things manifest in, in in other forms? Other forms. So Cameron's a very small place and I love community. So things I do that's not quite, not research related, but it, it comes down to people. <laughs> so I'm involved a lot in organising community events around things like um, TEDx Canberra. So I was involved in that for about five years, about bringing and facilitating, helping facilitate the, the, the amount of smart people that we have um, and for others to learn from that. I really enjoy that aspect and that comes through my job as well. I really help, I really love connecting people and seeing them grow because my intent is if you can grow and be you know, a million times better than what I can ever be, that is an awesome outcome. You know, I always hire people that are smarter than you. You want to encourage that growth. So for me, that stuff that manifests outside of my job is to do with things like that, um, things with like bar, I'm not sure about bar camp back in the days, um, something called GovHack. I used to be involved very early in the days where we look at open government data. How do we help people mesh that up into interesting things? All those little stuff like that is, is what um, is all, again, like connecting community and people. Yeah, and something else I do that's not even related is um, I love making. So my hubby and I, we, we're both makers. We like crafting things. <laughs> so I, I make science-themed jewellery for fun as well on the side using our lasers and 3D printers. Um, and for me, it's more about that, that, that process of designing something that's very, very tangible and you're prototyping that thing and you're wearing it and you're seeing people use it as well. And it's, it's very interesting. So although it's not a necessarily a... Uh, pure research, it's not a research thing. Yeah. It's um, it's a fun thing because you, you are trying to use a, a creative side of your brain in a very different way, in a, in a much more tangible way. So is that the connection to the creative, the, yeah. the different way of expressing that creativity? Yeah, and I find it, I'm just doing research on a very small scale, right? getting people to wear my stuff in and see how it works. You know, it's just mm. a very, very small scale stuff to see. But, but you, you learn a lot about people's behaviors about, you know, when they, they say things like, oh, Ruth, can you make that in these colors? Because we think, you know, I reckon people buy that. And what people say they want and what they actually end up doing. Yeah. You know, like we talk about it all the time, but to see it in action with your own products is very interesting because you'll make stuff and then you go because people ask for it. Right? So let's just try it, see what happens. You know, they, if there's not a need for it, it just you just blatantly see it sit there. <laughs> so just little things like that, but just really tiny stuff that we talk about in our practice that manifests in this way is, is very, it's just interesting. Can you describe one of your pieces? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we do is looking at data. We look at data. 
data. So Mojave actually takes the data from looking at the weather data for cities in Australia. So the Bureau of Meteorology here has like about 100 plus years of weather data. So we take that and actually visualise it into a wearable piece. Unfortunately, I'm not wearing one today. I'm wearing a serotonin molecule today, which is happiness. Um, so we take that and then actually model it into a bit of a, a big jewellery piece, statement piece, and then laser cut it. Um, and then and that's meant to show, you know, how, well, just data visualisation. How do we make science interesting and communicate these things in different ways? It's not just PowerPoint or you know, presentation or a survey, but actually a very tangible way of understanding data. So I'm, I'm interested in also that crossover between when we talk about research, the data and the, the data sciences folks. So I just love geeking out over some of the data stuff and go, hey, maybe we could find other just weird, wonderful ways to display this that may not have any actual use to researchers, but it's just geeky and fun. <laughs> You know, what do you think people who purchase your jewelry, I mean, because like so much of our work is the people that make something have a model of it and the people that use it have a model of it. And sometimes our job is to just try to, you know, articulate that delta, right? So so you're describing kind of what you're putting into these pieces and, and, and even just the geeky pleasure of it. But for someone that for someone that buys one and wears, wears something that you made, what's what's their interpretation or their narrative of what it is or what it means? Yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah, people come up and they, they go, they identify as a fellow science, science, science geek, science nerd. It's, it's fascinating seeing that and going, oh, is that, of serotonin molecule, I'm like it is, and then we have a conversation about science and about what, what makes them interested in science. And I use that as kind of a talking point to work out how they how do they get into this field, or they're not in, in the science field. How do they actually trigger? It's a good way to practice research questions, actually. But it's just fascinating seeing that kind of shared. I think that having that shared platform or or love of a particular field, whether in this case science, yeah, and and that's what connects people, and they and they feel like oh, they're part of this group of people who just love these kind of geeky things. There's something I don't know secret about it that that someone who gets it's going to get it when they see it, and somebody else is just going to yeah not, not recognize <laughs> that. Yeah, I think yeah, it's funny. Um, it's, it's not, not just a secret club, but it is that recognition that somebody else has this enjoys this thing. Whether it's you know people have that with music or you know with you know whether it's knitting or whatever their particular passion is. When you connect on that kind of level, it's just it's just so interesting. Then you start hearing their stories about how they're either buying it with their daughter because their daughter has started doing this thing about you know out in Antarctica, and you just go, wow, just the stories you hear. And I think that's when it comes to my research. I just love hearing people's stories as well, and you hear all these fascinating things that people tell you when they're buying your, when you're buying jewelry because it's just conversation starter yeah and you're connecting on something you're right it's not secret secret is about being hidden this is just a, that connection around something that about the recognition that's a better way of putting it to get those stories that's really really wonderful is there anything else that we should uh, cover in this conversation I think we had a good range of discussion I think, think so too <laughs> well thank you so much it's been really great to chat with you thanks thank for you, sharing Sue. so much great stuff that was really fun thank you very much for your help for your yeah. time all right that's the wrap on another episode subscribe to dollars to donuts wherever you get podcasts if you're using apple podcasts how's about giving the podcast a rating and even a short review this helps other people find out about the podcast portugal.com slash podcast has transcripts show notes and all of the episodes follow the podcast on twitter and buy my books interviewing users and doorbells danger and dead batteries from rosenfeld media or amazon our theme music is by bruce todd